1: hello and welcome to new books in sports a channel on the new books network my name is keith rathbone and i'm coming to you uh, live from lockdown sydney australia where i'm a senior lecturer in history at macquarie university we are locked down so if you hear any noise in the background that's probably my three-year-old but hopefully we're mostly hearing from peter rubal who's our guest today he is a senior research fellow at the Institute of Contemporary History at the Czech Academy of Sciences. Before we got together, he was telling me all about how great that is. <laughs> um, and he is the author of Sparta Kids, The Politics of Physical Culture in Communist Czechoslovakia that was published by uh, Karolinum Press in the Institute of Contemporary History in 2019. Although for the Anglophone audience, uh, mostly for maybe the American audience, it's being distributed by uh, University of Chicago Press, so that might be also a convenient place to locate it. Um, welcome, welcome, Peter, to New Books in Sports. Hi, Keith. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to have the chance
2: to talk to you, and thanks for the introduction.
1: I, I have to tell you, I was um, fascinated by the book. I've always wanted to know more about uh, both the Sokol movement and the Spartakia movement in Czechoslovakia and uh, it's embarrassing for me to admit as a european historian and as a sports historian i really didn't know as much as i wanted to but your book um fixed that right up but let me tell you I, I loved it uh can you tell me a little bit about how you got into sparta as a project how'd you develop this project
2: yeah thanks for the question i i, I hope i will not discourage the listeners who as, as i assume are mostly sport historians I'm actually not sport historians, and my book is not directly sport history, but I, given that I really think it's relevant still for, for sport uh, historians. I got to the topic um, from quite strange angle, basically from the angle of, of uh, uh, studying the legitimacy of communist regime. And this, if I can do a little sort of personal introduction to that, because it's a bit complicated. Um, I'm um, I'm coming into the history of communism from my own experience of growing up under the old regime, but my experience is very specific and narrow. Uh, both my parents were anti-communist activists. Uh, my father was also even imprisoned for a short time for printing illegal books uh, under communism, the so called Samizdat literature. And I, I even remember as a child uh, reading sort of the illegal published Lord of the Rings and, uh, and meeting <laughs> all these cool alternative culture people and, and former uh, reform communist politicians of the Prague Spring. So we were moving in that sort of very narrow. Group of anti-communist activists. Um, the communism fell when I was fourteen, so I, I experienced that quite actively. Um, but the problem with so that that raised lots of questions for me: how communism could operate for so long and so on. But as a personal experience, this was not very useful to understand or or get to the answers to these questions, because that was a group of about 2000 people maximum maybe actually much less who had this sort of active resistance uh, experience and the rest of the population sort of made some sort of arrangement much more practical uh, than my parents did so from very sort of early on i was really curious how this works for the other other people yeah so for me this was a question that i needed to answer through sort of anthropological inquiry into the sort of unknown culture. Uh, so this is really like the, the communist past is a foreign country for me in in, in in that sense. So I approach it as something that that really puzzled me. Uh yeah. and the Spartak yards were probably the most extremely puzzling phenomena <laughs> that uh, you know, you have synchronized movements on tens of thousands of of people at the stadium, are uh, willingly sort of embodying the ideals of communism, and that sort of didn't square with my experience uh, at all. And so I started to study it as as sort of an exploration into sort of manipulation, how people were manipulated into that, um, into doing that. I I couldn't believe that they. Did it voluntarily, or you know, I, I sort of, it was sort of a mystery f- uh, for me. So I started very much from sort of Hannah Arendt' uh, perspective and this sort of totalitarian um, view. But then I started to talk to people, and <laughs> I very quickly changed my my mind, um, and I uh, I started to look more as sort of social anthropology or cultural anthropology perspective on the, on the, on the subject. Um, And, and I was led by some great, uh, great people to, towards sort of better understanding than, than the totalitarian uh, narrative. So if, if I maybe might mention a few of these, uh, these people who, who worked um, with me at the, uh, or who led me actually at, at Central European University and then at Cambridge University. This really inspired me on, on, uh, to to uh, to improve the sort of the, the original design of the of the project, which was just sort of curiosity how how something like that is possible. So it was especially Istvan Rief at Central European University who sort of opened my eyes to this issue of. Politics of Aesthetics, and yeah, that sort of um, is, uh, I try to, to uh, bring into the topic. Then uh, Paul Connaughton and cabridge with whom I drank actually one or two bottles of Chilean wine, who sort of taught me to, to appreciate Marxism and critical theory. Uh, then Nikolai Solinchajkov, uh, who helped me to navigate in the sort of classics of cultural anthropology especially to rediscover Clifford Geertz, uh, Those discussions were also accompanied by a beer or two. So, in fact, I was drinking quite a lot in, in my short stay at Cambridge, I have to say. <laughs> um, and I was lucky to be mentored uh, by Jiří Musil, uh, a founder of urban sociology in Czechoslovakia, who sort of taught me to be sensitive to to the urban and spatial dimension of my research. And this much later then inspired me to move to urban history as sort of my next or current current research. And also probably the last name to to mention is uh, Henning Eichberg, uh, uh, a German-Danish sociologist of sport, who really sort of emphasized the the point that I sort of knew but was not aware enough. And that is sort of the importance of nationalism in, um, in sport. So, um, these were sort of all the inspirational, uh, sources that I think sort of led to this project.
1: Yeah. I, um, I, I was really, I mean, I'm glad that you're getting into some of your kind of theoretical underpinnings. Um, and I want to jump into that in a second. Um, but I think for listeners who maybe don't know. And I, I think, you know, that's probably a majority of them, maybe even, can you just give us a quick, you know, 60 seconds on what, what was the Spartakiet? I know the, you wrote the whole book about it, but um, you mentioned it's about kind of um, rhythmic, you know, mechanical movement. But if you were at a, at a Spartakiet as a spectator, what would you have seen?
2: Yeah this this is a bit a uh, challenge to to uh, translate that into words because if you see the the, the picture of that, that that's very sort of obvious and and especially for all generation you immediately know what what a sort of uh, what I'm talking about uh, basically it's a, it's a, a mass exercise sort of aerobics on gray great scale it's a, a sort of rather simple gymnastic exercises that sort of lasted about 10-15 minutes uh, um, and then they were replaced by another uh, performance. These uh, were performed at uh, stadiums in Prague actually in specially designed stadium, the biggest stadium in the world, which still it still holds the uh, that sort of um, position and it is um, um, it has sort of long tradition going to the 19th century nationalism, um, and it has a very sort of explicit anti sport um, uh, message. Yeah? So, this is not about competition, this is about cooperation. Uh, there are no winners, no losers. Uh, this is uh, 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 very close to a ritual, a political ritual or sporting ritual, but um, it, it's a lot about politics quite right from the very beginning. Yeah? So the synchronized movement of, of people uh, exercising first to, to some sort of mechanical beats and later to the music um, was very effective sort of a way of symbolizing some sort of ideas. Uh, we will probably get later uh, to, to that. I'm afraid I'm well over the 60 um, um, seconds for (laughs) introduction of that Mm -hmm. on that topic. But it's 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 sort of highly modernist uh, project where you distribute the bodies on the exercising field uh, in very strict geometrical um, order, and then sort of the success of this exercise is in the synchronicity, so that everyone does the movement exactly the same uh, at the same moment as all the others and that also means that it needs to be pretty simple because you need to to master uh, the the movements yeah so it, it has quite it's quite far uh, apart from uh competitive sport
1: yeah i'm i for me i mean I, I when i was reading about it of course i kind of had a sense of what it was I initially thought, oh, maybe it's like Fr- the French natural method, the Ebertiste method. And then I realized in reading it, oh, it's not like that at all. So then I got on to YouTube and looked up some Sokol, some Spartakia to try to see if I could it'd find some examples. And you can. And it immediately reminded me of the 2008 opening ceremony to the Beijing Olympics, this kind of like mass synchronicity, which, as you say, is kind of muscular and physical, but not sporty. Um, and, and I was thinking about the way in which people talked about those Olympic uh, opening ceremonies as being kind of particularly, uh, communistic, but you take on that idea that, and and not to reject it, but to grapple with it, the idea that the Spartacid is a kind of communist ritual. So I'm wondering like for, for you, and this is kind of, I guess, asking your big conclusion before we dig into the nitty gritty, (laughs) um, why is it a problem to look at the Sparta kids simply as a kind of communist ritual? Is this about self-Sovietization after forty-eight, or is there a kind of Gertzian perspective and even kind of a Czech-only thing um, going on—a kind of Czech nationalist perspective uh, going on in the midst of the communist era? So, can you kind of give us your big conclusions before we dig into the <laughs> dig into the <laughs> the smaller details, I guess?
2: Well, I think that there is something communist about it. Um, if you if you if you like, uh, you can you know you can definitely read it into it. But given the fact that it the practice as a cultural practice, it preceded the the communism for nearly a hundred years, or so, sort of at least eighty seventy years. So that in itself shows immediately that this is more about more of an adaptation of certain culture practice by communism than anything else, that in itself is nothing unusual. Yeah? Communism um, um, or state socialism was very very good at adopting the previous cultural practices, and this is one of the reasons for for its longevity. Yeah? Um, and then there is of course what what you just said about the about the um, specificity of the of the Czech project. Yeah? Because the Spartakians, um as you rightly said, resemble sort of the opening ceremonies or whatever they do now in North Korea. But um, unlike in other countries, the, the Czechoslovak Spartakiats were ritual on its own. Sort of the mass gymnastic displays didn't open anything, didn't conclude anything. It was the thing. Yeah? So just the display itself was what uh, what um, what really sort of mattered there so in that it's quite specific so again if it's specifically czechoslovak then how that could be communist the yeah, that's also uh, is is a bit of of question and of course for for us as historians to look at 40 years period of communism or in case of Soviet Union, 70 years and say you know it has one character is is really strange so what i try to to put in my book is also that these things change over the time, so it means one thing in in nineteen fifties. It been something different in nineteen eighties, and that's quite natural. And you would assume in another other in another context, like French context that you know so well, you wouldn't think that this would be the same thing. That it would be some sort of French sport, and it wouldn't change over time. Yeah. So this is also one of the sort of um, misconceptions about communism that it's sort of frozen in time and it doesn't evolve. Yeah. So that's other sort of Again, I'm I'm not doing the job right as you've asked me <laughs>
1: to, no, to no, give no. my conclusion.
2: I'm just sort of uh, circling around the the, the 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 topic that it's really not as much communist ritual
1: as something much broader. And That's the richness of your book, though, is that it, it, it actually takes that for me. For me, mm-hmm. was that it takes what might be our our, our pre assumptions about this kind of Spartakid ritual and anyone. I mean, sports historians—they read about Spartacid and they read it within, I think, the context of communism. And you actually paint a picture that says, "Oh, this is much more about something particularly Czech." That's, you know, my understanding of it—about it, Czech state socialism, but even more about Czech nationalism. Uh,
2: yeah, absolutely. And, and what what was the point with the where I was deeply um, sort of inspired by Guy Griffith um, Geertz was. So the autonomy of the ritual, in this case, the Yeah. So it's not that the, um, the ritual serves the state, but the state serves the ritual. Yeah, it's it's really creates its own sphere in which the state is only one of the actors. Um, it has its own meaning and it, its own tradition. The state simply cannot interrupt that. That tradition without enormous cost, and we might go back to that because it actually did happen at one 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 time, yeah. But very critical time, yeah. So that's what I took from 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 Geertz, This sort of that uh, this is some sort of negotiation. The, the ritual is a negotiation about power. Yeah, it's not. It's not um, um, disguising the the power. It's you don't need to sort of actually use sort of Marxist. Uh, tools for for that. You don't need psychoanalysis for that. You can actually look at the the ritual itself and try to understand what's going on. And you don't need to actually look into the heads of the leaders to know what is the meaning. Because the meaning is right there in front of you. I know I, this is really simplification, yeah? You wanted it, so now no, I simplify it. Yeah. No,
1: no, it's good. It makes me want to jump ahead to to your fourth chapter on kind of the organization, because what I, I should um, give a quick rundown. Your first chapter, which we'll move to in a second, deals with the kind of genealogy, and you, you've you already remarked on kind of the longer history of, of, of this kind of specifically Czech gymnastic movement. Um, and then you look uh, at kind of the early period and later period post normalization within the Spartacid, and then you have two chapters at the end that kind of, oh, in many ways overlap the 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 whole of the of the period you examine. Mm-hmm. What first is on the organization of the Spartacid, and the and, the, and then the fifth chapter is on society in the Spartacid, kind of looking at why people, how do people react to it. Um, but your fourth chapter on organization of the Spartakiad really, um, I loved it because the the full cost of this to the, the state socialist system became so clear, and you're like, oh my god, how much money are they spending on these events every five years? Um, it was just kind of an immense, an immense undertaking. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes.
2: Yeah, that is exactly the point. They, they, simply too much <laughs> for for their own sake. It was it was ruining the system, and and that's what exactly um, Geertz uh, you know describes at, at, at Bali. That that actually there is there is a sort of kink that that serves the pomp. Yeah, it's it's his entire sort of politics is about uh, providing the the ritual for for the for the people. And there are some there are some great books on that on on antiquity where were also this you know, uh, bread and circuses it's not only about sort of the you know cynical game but it's 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 much more complex yeah the interaction between uh, the the ritual and the power is, is much more complex than, than being usually sort of under this lay interpretation of Marxism
1: we, we sort of uh, assume I think. So then how does, be, I mean, to jump then in, in, a, in a poor transition into your first chapter, how does this kind of gymnastics movement become such an all pervasive feature of Czech society? Like, where does this, this come from? Uh, and I guess I've mentioned so-called before, but can you give us some of this long genealogy?
2: Okay, so I I, I I trace it into the two sort of routes. So first, maybe I will start with this, the thing which is more obvious, and that is sort of Czech nationalism um, that that emerges in the you know mid nineteenth century, as sort of organized uh, uh, nationalism to to use uh, Miroslav Roch sort of. Uh, uh, phases of of nationalism very useful sort of tool to 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 work with, um, and and uh, this is a time of sort of nationalist movements that use the relative liberty that that operates in Habsburg um, monarchy, and they compensate for the fact that Czechs and many other nations do not have national institutions, so the movements are um sort of filling this this vacuum um in a very specific way and then i call it sort of gymnastic zonderweg in 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 my in my book because i think this function of sporting movements which um, replace the state institutions and replace them by sort of national movements are then giving them a specific um, a specific character that is different from, uh, the development in, in, in Western Europe and especially in, in, in Anglo Saxon, uh, meaning of the sport. Yeah. So this is, this sort of, um, allergy to competitiveness, for example, is, is something that, that I think comes from this idea that, that these nationalist movements are actually national institution, and, because they are national institution and not state institution, they do not have a natural boundaries. Yeah? So they are quite naturally sort of expansive and, and relatively aggressive nationally because they don't they are not tied by the state state borders. Um, the Sokol movement was uh, founded in the in the 60s uh, by um, a professor of, of aesthetics, um Miroslav Tirsch, who was um, uh, a german by origin and he modified his name and i, I made a bit of fun of, of him in my book uh, um, where i described the i think four or five stages in which he changed the name from typical german name into a czech one and 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 then he copied a german quite well established german model of uh, this um, um gymnastics or turner um uh, movement into the czech environment and and i mean copied yeah there, there was very little change in, in 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 that he created terminology which is very typical for those nationalist uh, uh movements that they 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 take something from as a package but they need to to lay label it locally yeah so this is uh, this is copied to the czech environment from the from the czech uh, from the german uh word f- with which Tirsch was intimately sort of uh, connected and um, Thomas Garrig masaryk made fun of this and yeah? he said like, how, you know, how can you um, uh, fight against the German dominance by adopting everything from, from, from Germany especially if, the, if this movement, the so-called movement, is, is led by two Germans because the other, other uh, founder was also of German origin. Masaryk later sort of regretted his his sort of remarks because when during the the war he was building the Czechoslovak nation abroad, uh, he depended heavily on the infrastructure of the Sokol movement, which became sort of the most powerful um, um, national movement shortly before the First World War, and was sort of backbone of the of the Czechoslovak army uh, abroad, which famously captured Siberia for, for a while. So the so-called movement um, copied the German uh, practice of so the Turner movement. I don't think I need to explain sort of the origins of, of that um, in, in detail, but then there was some modification of that. Um, because for, for, for the German uh, Turner movement, the, the the crucial thing was the unification of of Germany, um, and therefore this synchronized gymnastics in the same sort of uniform in, in the same movement at the same time actually across Germany was a way to uh, to overcome the disintegration of of the German states and create sort of at least imaginary state or imaginary collective body in the minds of. The, the gymnasts. And this is something that, that the Czechs were not that uh, worried about. Yeah. They were much more worried about the size of the nation and uh, its near disappearance uh, at the end of, of um, or during the 18th, 17th, 18th century. Yeah, so um, the unification was not such a crucial, uh, crucial issue at, at that time. So they tried to overcome the smallness of the nation, but they didn't really have tools for that. So I think from there the focus of on aesthetics came. So they needed to overcome the Germans, um, but they couldn't do it by the size. So they they tried it by the perfection, and that also fit to the uh, project of of um, who was um, uh, you know expert in aesthetics and. He tried to to change the Sokals into sort of the the perfection of the the statues of antiquity. By the way, in in the book Little Advertisement for for the book, Tirsch is there depicted uh, naked actually from from both sides uh, because that was part of that that project. So he was perfecting the body of Czechs into the, the, uh, the antiquity ideal. And of course, that also um, uh, meant that the male body was was to be displayed uh, naked, at least not at least in in this uh, in these portraits of of him. Um, he's he's extremely interesting character in itself. He then commits suicide mysteriously in in uh, in, in in the Alps, and he suffers. Uh, uh, mental illness uh, throughout the, the period uh, of the establishment of the, of, the, of the movement. And he's also a great, I think, example of how the, the Czech nation is created in very short uh, uh, span of time. Here I would refer to a famous Czech uh, um, scholar uh, Matsura who inspired me a lot in, 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 by, by his work and he speaks about sort of this creative um, nature of the Czech nationalist movement, but also many other nationalist movements, um, that you, you can create at that time really a word for yourself, even if it's just this little Czech word. Yeah, so Miroslav Tirš comes to Prague as a young, ambitious man, and he he finds the Czech nationalist movement very attractive and very promising for his own future he wanted to come to prague to establish a shakespeare club but discovers that there is already one so he thinks about okay well what else i know and he was already a gymnastic trainer in a private institution so he found this um and because nothing is done yet yeah so everything is open for him uh so he uh, he he recreates himself, and he also sort of, in this way, recreates the nation and tries to reshape it. One of the key slogans of the Soko movement was "Every Czech a Soko." Every yeah, Czech
1: sorry. a Sokol, right?
2: Well, yeah, I, he tries to create a. Sorry, yeah, no, no, ahead.
1: no. I was, go, I was going to say, I, um, I mean, the first this first chapter is you cover a lot of ground. It's really rich. Um, what you do in terms of. Of framing Sokol as this kind of key nationalist institution that helps bring together the Czech nation, but that also because it's um, maybe so pervasive uh, more so than, than other national institutions um, helps shape through its aesthetic uh, the kind of ideal, ideal of the Czech state later um, both in this first um uh, Republic period, and then mm-hmm. in 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 the in the in, the, in this uh, socialist period as well. And, and for people who are um, interested in the kind of interwar body politic, I want to. Uh, there's not just naked uh, drawings of Tisch. Uh, there's there's a really good discussion of the kind of um, body politics of different gymnastic movements, and the Germans being maybe too. Um, focused on their upper body. <laughs> uh, so there's yes. there's a lot of, I mean, I think uh, that's obviously a conversation that's ongoing, <laughs> but um, people interested in kind of this pan-European conversation about the ideal body type, national body types. should these body types be the same? Are each nation um, composed of people who are essentially different and thus need different body types? Uh, all that's all there but eventually of course we get to the, the 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 geopolitical movements which help shape things too and um, we we come into the the communist period so the communists when they come to power they they are face to face with this sokol movement that they have to deal with so what are they you know why does the why doesn't sokol disappear in 48 why does it keep going you've hinted at some of this already we're jumping into chapter 2 <laughs> So tell, okay, take okay. us into that period. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, um, yeah, the well, the so-called newly disappeared. Um, it was quite quite close. Um, well, first of all, as with many other things, um, communism simply inherited very complex society that they needed to govern somehow. And the Sokol movement was the biggest uh, movement uh, that they 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 encounter. Yeah, it had uh, after Second World War it had a million a million members, and everyone who meant something was so-called. And they quite cleverly decided to disband their own uh, sporting organization, which of course they they had in interval period because Communist Party was legal, unlike in other. Uh, Central European countries, they could operate here, but they dissolved their own organization and 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 uh, asked their members to join Sokol, and they argued that the the sporting organization should be unified. And it was a time of great sort of centralization that was not only a communist project; it was more general uh, trend that sort of so called the national revolution needs to be done by sort of great unification and. We need to get rid of the sort of the plurality that destroyed the the first republic. That means the interwar um, uh, republic. So um, they first try to cooperate with the so-called movement, um, and they also faced a practical problem that they took over the country uh, in February 1948, but already for. Five years or four years, the 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 um, uh, the new uh, so-called sled, which was the major gathering of all the so where these performances took place, was in preparation. So they um, they they had a practical problem in a few months' time. They they had somehow to control something that they didn't prepare. So they either could cancel it or or let it let it go. Um, and they, instead of um, going against the so-called, they decided to to try to incorporate them into the, the new regime. Um, and um, they went ahead with the organization of of this of this slot, sled in 1948. Unfortunately for them, it turned turn into a massive sort of demonstration against the communist regime. That probably was the only time they really were challenged on that sort of. Grand scale, where thousands of people were sort of cursing them and publicly displaying um, this loyalty to them. And based on this experience, and also the pressure from the Soviet Union, was that it, it looked that this um, uh, type of exercising will disappear from the cultural practice of communism. Uh, but then Stalin died nine days later. Uh, Our local Stalin, Clement Gottwald, died. So he went to burial and and got the flu and died. Um, And there was a political sort of vacuum there and and symbolic vacuum because Stalinism um, and its legitimacy rested on the figure of the leader. Suddenly the leader was not there. There was even criticism of the the leader and the cult of leader. And you needed to have a, a, a symbolic representation of the collective body. And unlike in Nazism, the communists didn't really have a, an option to represent the Communist Party as the embodiment of the nation. Just think about the um, the meetings of the Central Committee of Communist Party of the Soviet Union you know, Czechoslovakia. You know, this is this is a very boring event, and this is a um, lot of old people in ills Fitting suits sitting there and (laughs) listening to long speeches. That's not, you know, that will not move anyone. Um, And it also doesn't symbolize the people because it it symbolizes party, which is exclusive and it should be exclusive. So so they needed a a new symbol of the nation. Um, And they look back to the tradition of the so called movement and sort of adopted it um, very sort of systematically. Uh, they hired the Sokols to to organize it for them. They made all kind of concessions so this would, would work, but they changed the name of the event uh, from Sokol Sled to Spartakiad. That referred to the uh, tradition of left uh gymnastics. And um, it it then also sort of dissolved the organization of the Sokol. Yeah, so the 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 are essentially so called sleds yeah, in all their aspects, but without the so called movement. And the communist regime was very systematic in, in never allowing uh, um, any movement emerging uh, from the, the gymnastics. Yeah, so they, they adopted the form, but they they uh, the the content, so to say, um, uh, they didn't uh, they didn't allow. Yeah, so I think this is, this is in a nutshell what, what, what happened. Yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day. At sax.com.
1: Yeah, this chapter I think is really, I mean, for people interested in the aestheticization of physical culture in, in Czechoslovakia, this chapter is the one to read because you you very deftly weave um, between kind of readings of the Spartakia as a kind of socialist, realist. Um, ceremony or ritual Mm
0: -hmm, uh,
1: and um, but also against it and in navigating the ways in which the the organizers themselves were trying to figure out what what socialist realist um, physical culture was (laughs) because it couldn't be like fascist physical culture it couldn't have a kind of organicist model it needed something different What was the relationship between discipline and spontaneity within the Spartakia? What was the, you know, what was the uh, new model for gender? (laughs) Um, How were they going to employ folklore? So can you talk a little bit about um, the kind of, not so much the model, but, um, you know, what what was the aesthetic underpinning, at, Mm -hmm. at least before normalization, right?
2: Yeah, and I will probably get to that. There is, there is a real sh- shift there later on. Um, um, these are really sort of socialist realist uh, event in 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 their aesthetics, and I think has sort of again great political implications. Um, I think the best example would be to look at what's happening with with gender, and it's it's slightly complicated, but I think you know I we'll, will we'll, manage to explain it. Um, Similarly to what happened to class um, or nationalism, or sorry, uh, national identity, um, Stalinism sort of draw very clear lines about, uh, around these identities, but then actually it assigned them quite arbitrarily. So um, gender. And gender distinction plays enormous role in, in the Spartacus 5055, uh, 55, 60, but they very different from the previous times. Um, gender is simply a marker of difference, okay? um, but it has no tie to some sort of idea of natural, so-called natural um, roles of the genders or sexes. And, you know, it just uses as sort of a part in the great machine that drives towards the socialist progress. And and I think this, to maybe simplify it, um, this is basically um, using the the principle of mosaics. So the individual bits that you compose the image from needs to be very well defined. Clear cut, uh, unproblematic, and then you assemble them quite arbitrarily into sort of one big sort of story or image. Yeah? But um, that doesn't, you know, you can you can move them as as you as you like. You are the master of of the of the narrative as as the as the leader. Yeah, so you are not tied by the, the tradition or organizes sort of metaphors and so on. Yeah? Yeah. so it's it's very very arbitrary. And so, and, and this this later on changes uh, quite radically. It's also uh, the uh, the fifties are typical for employing um, uh, avant-garde artists. So there are sort of mass choreography of the of the bodies with very little sporting con- content. I described there one one performance. Um, it's called I think New Shift Begins. And in that performance, um, thousands of uh, male gymnasts are forming huge cockwheels on the surface of the stadium. And as they are running, the cockwheels are turning. Yeah. Um, while while the, the women are, are um, um, performing um, something that, that should resemble lines of, of wheat uh, waving in the wind. So, extremists of explicit symbolism. Um, also, the mo- movements of the bodies are very sort of s- stylized, very symbolic. Yeah? Very often, they are they are actually um, showing some other movement. So, they exercise in order to display like work uh, or leisure activities. At some at some points, they are actually you know doing movements that should. Show sporting activities, and yeah? so they are not doing sport. They are they are showing sport. Yeah? Right. So it goes into quite absurd sort of lengths um, to imitate these the socialist realist aesthetics.
1: But as you as you've already alluded to, and as you discuss in your third chapter, this changes pretty significantly after uh, the Pro- Prague Spring and after the cancellation of the 1970 uh, Spartacad. So. Maybe you can talk us through a bit how the Spartakia, um is impacted by this new era. What, what happens, um, and, and how does the Spartakiet change?
2: Yeah, so I think that's um, that's really a profound change because I think the regime actually changes dramatically after uh, Soviet intervention in, in '68. I have some serious doubts how much communist it is after after that that year. Yeah? So the legitimacy of the regime changes dramatically. It no longer aspires to transform the society, but to pacify it. So the preferences are completely different, and that that shows in the Spartakians as well. Um, I I describe in my book sort of the strange dialogue that, that the government was trying to to create with the population. So they were guessing at what sort of symbolism the population is is willing to accept and what is already too far. And of course, it's strange dialogue because the other side does not respond. So it's just guessing what what is acceptable and what what is not. So you see a sort of nationalization of the the performance. So now all the symbols are national symbols. Um, You also see... Uh, the, the return to the so-called model of representation of of the body, so um, it tries to get rid of all the additions to uh, to the um, sort of symbolic power of the of the body. So, for example, if you look at the transition of the army performances, yeah, the soldiers in fifties were uh, performing in uniforms with weapons. Uh, the tanks were going through the stadium and so on. Yeah. Now they are nearly naked. Yeah. Um, they are and and, and the, their body, their physically strong body, which is organizedly santained. It was part of the military training was that they were um, they were uh, lying and, and getting proper suntain for the performance. Um, uh, this is, you know, this uses the well-established sort of connotations of that strong male body or or attractive female body, all these all these uh, sort of stereotypes are mobilized um, in pretty brutal fashion. Especially if, if you look at what's happening with the with the symbolism of female body, that that is not emancipatory in any sense. I think some of the examples that I show in my book are quite shocking. Yeah, the way the way the women are pushed to symbolize. Um, very traditional supportive role. How they are tied to natural uh, cycles of reproduction and natural myth, uh, historical myth, and 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 so on. While it becomes it a has much nothing m- to do. Oh, to sorry, m- sorry. sorry,
1: I was going to say, and in, in, I think you mentioned in your in the book as well it becomes a much more kind of Foucauldian almost biopolitical ritual um, post-normalization. Yes, yes, yes. Now, the one thing I I would point out that I thought was really interesting is that it wasn't just young people, it was also older people as well. Mm-hmm. That even people with gray hair, they were kind of wanted to emphasize um, family life as well as um, just the kind of usual categories of youth and um, exuberance.
2: <laughs> yes, that's true. And actually it was very inclusive and it has some positive aspects uh, in that sense. So it was exactly, it was um, performance for, for quite old Especially older older men, yeah, because the men were no longer terribly attractive to to these uh, exercises. So in fact, they were getting uh, older each five years. The same men were performing, yeah? so they were getting older and older, and they had to adopt to that. So the the the, the exercising these were were simpler. Um, so they would they would cope with it. And also on the other end of the spectrum, they try to in, include mothers sometimes fathers as well with very small children so from two years old the the normal was about three three four Uh, they had sort of common exercises with you know mothers and and children something Mm. that was unthinkable in the 50s and 60s where the idea was that the children actually should be sort of taken away from from the family um environment and be socialized yeah in and there was a very explicit discussion about it that this this is not acceptable i interviewed the the founder of this um uh, of this practice of exercises of of mothers with with children and, and she described how difficult it was uh, for her to to convince uh the the leadership that this is uh, this is good idea and then suddenly in the 70s and 80s uh, this became the, the, the central ideological message: yeah? this this unity of mother and, and small child and. And imperfection of the children and how they actually didn't exercise but played with the sand on the stadium was something that was celebrated, not not um, not
1: corrected. Yeah? So I did. I, I of- did <laughs> want to know that. I loved. In in, obviously, I read this in an English translation, but the the, the what they called the, these children just misbehaving, quote unquote, or not doing what they're supposed to, soloists. Uh, that, yes, yes. <laughs> I had someone with a three-year-old myself. I was like, ah, oh, yes. That's my daughter, <laughs> a solo. <I> <laughs>
2: Absolutely, but it goes against the logic of the performance, where you know the only mm-hmm, the, the exercises made only sense if everyone does it at the same time. Otherwise, you know, why would you do it?
1: Yeah.
2: And so and it, there is a music to it. Yeah. So it's it's it's. Uh, yeah, but the, this tolerance of and also that goes to for teenage boys. Yeah, something that was sort of. They were strictly disciplined in previous but again suddenly the discourse is okay well they are you know they are, they are teenage boys they will they will they will do mistakes they will they will come late there is you know there's this sort of um, attempt to uh, to create inclusive uh, ritual and what was sort of shocking for me is how successful it is so uh, that i sort of um, argue against some of the narratives of socialist rituals and also of the socialist regimes at towards the end of the the existence that it sort of was just you know dying um, and and boring and so on. There is great energy there, yeah. But then what I try to argue at the very end, the, the times really change. Yeah. So I think what what I speak about is not communist ritual but modern ritual. And then yeah. you but, know uh, once we enter the postmodern era the time is over for that, it's,
1: yeah, so. there, And I'm, I'm, I'm. it makes me think about how in your third chapter, you talk about the kind, and you continue to talk about that in chapters four or five, the kind of feminization of Sokol, cool, as men, mm-hmm. many men kind of drop out because they prefer sport or something else. Uh, I, I do want to turn to chapter four and chapter five. These were, I have to admit, uh, my two favorite chapters because they're just so full of um, really funny details. <laughs> Uh, for example, in chapter four, you have a long discussion of the fact that maybe so cold doesn't actually benefit the body <laughs> in a real way. Yes. Like it, the, the ideologically, at least, it's supposed to create a, a more perfect, um, you know, body, but actually, it perhaps doesn't. And when you compare that to the immense cost of the organization of the Spartakid. Um, you, you get a sense, a real sense, as, as you put it, it's the state in service of the ritual rather than the ritual in service of the state. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it was like. I mean, how did they actually host these things? I, I think people might think we're thinking about 10,000 people, but how many people participated in, in a Spartakia? And what were some of the difficulties that the state faced in organizing the whole thing in the first place?
2: Yes. uh, um, That's a good question. Uh, No, the scale was completely different. Uh, So um, the training was done by one to 2 million people. Mm -hmm. Mostly, of course, the biggest number of that was the school kids were which somehow had to do it or were incentivized to do it. Uh, But then the um, about one-tenth of that number came to Prague to perform. So we speak about something about 200,000 gymnasts uh, coming to Prague to exercise. Plus, of course, there's a lot of spectators. So I know it from, from, for example, my supervisor at Central European University, who happened to come to Prague accidentally at at the time of the Spartacus and he couldn't get accommodation because Prague was simply full. Uh, So it was a major logistic uh, challenge for the regime which was barely coping as it was. Famously, um, in in, um, the mid-80s, the the factory for production of of the toilet paper burned down and there was, for a couple couple of months, there was no toilet paper in Czechoslovakia. So it it was really struggling to simply keep going. And then suddenly, it was able to organize such a major event. And there I played with the idea of sort of a moral economy and describes how this is actually perfectly logical. So uh, the communist regime was able to mobilize its resources for very short and specific task because it has this sort of planning capacity. And it also served as a great symbol and sort of invigoration of the regime. If we can do this, we can do whatever we we, we try to to achieve. but then, on the other hand, they relied heavily on the well established practice of how this is done and how the so called movement always did it. Yeah? So, for example, it looks like an impossible task to accommodate 200,000 gymnasts in Prague. Well, they canceled the school year earlier and put all these gymnasts into the schools where they slept on the floor, uh, used whatever bathroom facilities there were in that in the schools yeah, so it was very primitive um, then they used army to to feed uh, the, the the people um, uh, but there were some major logistical headaches especially surrounding the, the transport and also how to entertain these people after they perform yeah? so this is something that i also uh, work with the contrast between the perfect discipline at the stadium and the complete chaos right after the performances ended, yeah, where it really turned into a sort of carnivalesque um, uh, atmosphere in, in Prague where police basically uh, retreated from the public space as much as they as they could. They tried not to use any heavy tactic because they want people to enjoy the event. Eh? They let people drink heavily um, and they just recorded the costs of, you know, that they break down whatever the equipment there was available there, and um, the trains returned from Prague completely destroyed. Especially the troubling where the the miner, uh, the, the apprentices who's, who who like mining apprentices uh, in Ostrava region yeah, wouldn't you know really use that carnivalesque atmosphere to to get mo- most of the uh, of the opportunity to. It was not about striking back to the regime. It was more about sort of liberating, at least for a few days, from quite oppressive. Uh, yeah,
1: leadership. You talk about. I mean, I, I would. I would just mention one other thing in terms of like the actual organization of the Spartakia. That really struck me was that it often took longer for people to assemble in the stadium to actually walk through the doors and get onto the field than the events themselves, and that people complained about that. That gives you a sense of kind of the scope Is it just took so long for this many people to get out um, and, and to, to, to assemble at all these kind of predetermined spaces on the field that were marked out by these particular markers. And the markers had to be marked out um, years in advance and they had to move them out <laughs> because people's yeah, bodies changed. You needed hundreds
2: people actually put the, to put the markers there. Yeah. So there was a sort of like military organization just to make the exercising field sort of...
1: Um, operational um your your fifth chapter deals entirely with this this thing that you were just mentioning which is you know how do people react to it and i think most people's um initial reading of it based on a kind of sense that oh this is just a communist ritual would would put it within that frame of resistance versus um you know um kind of acquiescence or acceptance but your take is much more complicated so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how, how people responded to the Spartakia and, and even kind of then tracing it into the post communist era. Is there a kind of spartakia if that, if that's a word, <laughs> I'm, I'm coining a neologism, I guess, but um, yeah. What, how do people respond to Spartakia and, and how do people feel about mm-hmm. it now? Yeah. So, um...
2: Very, very briefly, a uh, methodological point that I try to to make in in the, in the point in the in the, in the books. I um, when we speak of communist society, we can debate whether it was communist or not, but we still should remember that it was a society. You know, communists never managed to to create what they dreamed about, sort of unified people. So it was always very complex, modern society with all kind of classes of people and interests and these interests conflicted and of course partagyads were one of the things that some people used uh, uh, against some other people and what they used for their their improvement of their status and so on yeah. so this is again something that I, t- I tried maybe in vain to
1: to no not in vain, you know, vain at all no that, no no
2: <laughs> that you know as we wouldn't speak, I think, about French society as, as monolithic, we, we cannot speak about the communist societies either. Yeah? So these are very complex uh, societies that, that sort of interact. So each sort of group that I try to sort of distinguish a bit um, uh, reacted differently. Of course, the so-called and their children, yeah? which you know we start with a million people, already members, and then they have children, They tr- then they pass this tradition. on. These people were very enthusiastic in in continuing what they thought was uh, so-called tradition with under the different name. And then I think uh, most of the other supporters were people who simply um, tried to enjoy as much as they could the offer that the communist system gave them through the Spartakiats and the generosity of the state. Yeah, so they were... Um, the, the communist regime was very sort of gray and suddenly there was something carnivalesque and very colorful. So of course they, they enjoyed it. But then there were people who were simply completely put off by that, especially in Prague. Uh, lots of Prague people hated the fact that for a for few days, once in five years, uh, the, the villagers take over the capital. And they, if they could, they, leave. they left the, the capital for, for their weekend houses. And And they ridiculed the event, and um, we have quite a lot of evidence of this ridicule, and there were also resistance um, to the event, but these were uh, quite marginal. As far as the post-communist development, uh, I think there is a great deal of nostalgia uh, for the Spartakias, and I think that relates to the general nostalgia for communism and and I think that relates to the, the experience of, of failure of the post-communist um, government and, and, and development. Yeah, so I think it was Adam Michnik who, who, who said that that the worst thing about communism was what came after. Yeah, so I think that that is that is uh, roots of this sort of nostalgic feeling for Spartakia's as a time when a collective action was possible yeah? and. And there is, it's a it's a reaction to excesses of neoliberalism and, and excesses of of individualism as as, as such, yeah? um, and this longing for for collective experience is, is something that we we I think sh- should take quite seriously, and not just look at it. Okay, the old people are just you know. Uh, reminiscencing about the time when they were they were still healthy and and could do sport, And I think there is there is some serious critique of the current era there.
1: Well, certainly, I think um, as humble as you're as you're being in the interview, you've painted just a, a very vivid picture of a very particular Czech institution, uh, and not a Czechoslovak. And in some ways, as you as you make clear in your book, mm-hmm. a very Czech institution. That that um, whose disappearance in some ways in in, in reduction and the post communist era is a real loss for physical culture uh, one that's been kind of re- replaced or effaced by um, you know the sportification of, of these British games mostly f- soccer football um, which is not necessarily um, although I, I like soccer as much as the next person maybe mm-hmm. more um, it does it does lack it is less than. Um, than this, than this Spartakia and, and Sokol experience. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to encourage uh, listeners to really check this book out. Um, each one of the chapters is kind of rich in their own way. Uh, you know, whether it's your genealogical chapter, which gives a great history of this of, of gymnastics movements in Central Europe, uh, to to your chapters, your fourth and fifth chapters especially, which are kind of uh, really fun. Um, and informative and, and, and incisive um, discussions of as you put it the the kind of generosity of the of the socialist state and the ways in which people were able to transform that generosity to their own aims and ends um, it was really a fun read um, i i i uh, i encourage people to pick it up uh, Peter, what what I, I this last question I always ask people: what what can we look forward to reading from you next? You hinted that you've gone in an urban history direction. Is that
2: yes, absolutely, and uh, specifically post uh, Second World War Prague history. I'm now working on on urban planning, and the link to Spartakat is is a bit tedious. So it's well, basically, the Spartakat took place on on one Prague hill, so I have I covered one hill. I have a few more hills to to <laughs> cover in in, in Prague. No, I'm I'm actually b- b- and I published just now with with uh, my uh, colleagues um, Brian Ladd and Matej Spurny and Chaba Jelinek, a spe- special issue of uh, Journal of uh, Urban History um on sort of crisis of socialist modernism and and the rise of um, sort of new new neoliberal urban Planning or rather lack of it. Um, <laughs> so, so this this is the, something that I work mostly on. It's also continuation with the Spottakat project in the sense that I look at the role of experts and interaction of experts uh, with the uh, communist regime, whatever is that. <laughs> and we we discover we as we research it, we discover that there is less of regime, or that that they actually. Doesn't really exist as 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 a regime. Yeah, it's it's a sort of collection of various interests and 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 forces and and experts seems to play an increasing, ever increasing role in in running of the of the system. as something that you would actually expect. So, urban planning is definitely uh, my new uh, new area and and urban planning of, of Prague especially.
1: Yeah, and uh, I, we didn't talk about it at all in the in, in the interview today. But there's some really um, uh, interesting sections on and urban planning and architectural symbolism within this work as well uh, that I really appreciated. Uh, although we did, like I said, we didn't talk about it. But um, for people who are interested in that, I encourage them to pick it up as well. Um, I've been speaking today with Peter Rubal. He's a senior research fellow at the Institute of Contemporary History at the Czech Academy of Sciences. And he's the author of Spartakiad, The Politics of Physical Culture in Communist Czechoslovakia, which was published by Karolinum Press and the Institute of Contemporary History in 2019. But as I mentioned earlier, it's being distributed um, by University of Chicago Press as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Peter.
2: Thank you, Keith, very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you from Sydney, where I'm a senior lecturer uh, in history in the Department of History and Archaeology at Macquarie University. Thank you for listening.